0: Welcome to Housing After Dark. I'm your host, Alex Shafrin. In today's episode, we feature one of the most important sectors in housing, housing journalists. I think it's safe to say that most people, even semi-grizzled academics turned housing professionals like yours truly, get much of their news and information about what's happening in housing through journalists. Many of us are also sources for journalists or work for organizations with comms teams trying to influence What gets written and recorded. There has also been a noticeable uptick in the quantity of housing journalism out there as more and more media outlets add housing coverage in the face of a growing housing crisis and what I'd like to believe is a growing interest in all things housing. So, what does this mean for housing journalists and for those of us who rely on journalists to make our housing ideas and stories and campaigns public? Today's conversation is with Editor in Chief Miriam Axel Lute and investigative journalist Shelby King from Shelterforce, a publication that I love, a place I've been honored to publish, and a site that has been holding it down in housing long before it became popular. Join me for a conversation on how they became housing journalists on the state of the field and what housing journalism needs to take housing reporting to the next level. All right, Shelby King, Miriam Axelut, welcome to another daytime edition of Housing After Dark. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, so, as I mentioned in my intro, I'm really excited to have both Shelby and Miriam here, who are part of a publication, Shelter Force, that's pretty near and dear to my heart. I think as one of the ways when I was a young housing organizer, I started to learn about the field more broadly. Um, I remember when. Jake Wegman and Deirdre Pfeiffer and I published a, a small piece on some of our tenure work in Force. It made me feel like I had actually, for the, one of the first times, was really communicating with people on the ground who are doing work in housing. Uh, and it, the future of housing journalism is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So it's just really wonderful to have you both here to learn a little bit about the history of Shelter Force, about how both of you became housing journalists uh and then uh, you know dig into the state of housing journalism and where housing journalism needs to go and uh and where shelter force is going so miriam i thought maybe we'd start with you give us a little bit of a understanding in how shelter force became the only independent non-academic uh publication in the united states focusing exclusively on community development and housing and related issues
1: sure glad to well shelter force has been around a long time. In 1975, there were some tenant organizers and legal aid lawyers in New Jersey who wanted to communicate with other tenant organizers around the country and find out what they were doing and how they were faring in their similar fights and share strategies and talk policy and have a way to communicate between them. And so I believe it was in a closet of the legal aid office was their first sort of official Place. Um, the, the Shelter Force Collective found, was formed in Pat Morrissey's living room to start putting out this publication. So that's its origins, very grassroots, very connected uh, to practitioners, just and organizers specifically wanting to share with each other their their tactics and and ideas. And as over the years, many of those folks. Uh, moved into developing affordable housing and working on community development and community planning and things uh, alongside of tenant organizing. The publication just grew along with them to encompass all of those ideas and all of those topics and really became something that was serving this broader set of fields that might be called community development or housing, uh, affordable housing sector. And that has continued and brought us all the way up to the present
0: one of the things that we'll talk about coming up and things i've always loved about shelter force is it's a place where you have professional journalists writing about housing who've learned about housing you have professional housers that have learned enough about how to write to be able to share their ideas folks in between we'll talk about amanda abrams great work and transforming from a professional houser to a, a, a top-notch professional freelance journalist miriam how did how what was your path to to becoming a, a housing journalist this is a a podcast about housing for housers and we always like to get at people's own stories of how they got to this place
1: yep well my story is unconventional uh <laughs> in that uh i so i came to this this world and, and this set of causes, starting from an interest in environmentalism. And that was my my focus in college. I was an environmental studies and biochemistry major, but I started, I had a seminar on the American city. It was the 90s, it was the time when people were starting to talk about urban sprawl. And there was a very strong cohort within the environmental studies program that I was a part of that was trying to push for more coverage of environmental justice that we used to joke that we spent a lot of time sitting in the back row, raising our hands and saying, but that doesn't affect everyone equally. That doesn't affect everyone equally and trying to bring a uh, perspective of justice and inequality into the conversation and also to counter the anti-urbanism that was fairly rampant in environmentalism at the time. And so that is how I got interested in these topics. I interned at Shelter Force in the middle of college. and its offices happened to be next door to where I grew up. And that was my introduction to to the publication, to journalism. I didn't I was a writer, but I didn't do journalism. I wasn't at a college paper or high school paper or anything. But I really my my first um, article that I wrote for Shelter Force first two was during my internship. And I, the first one I got to write about squatters being evicted on the Lower East Side to make way for an affordable housing development, which was quite attention. And my, you know, I think my first interview with a public official, I got the quote, we're not evicting them. We're just removing them involuntarily, uh, which, you know, was was quite a gem. But it, you know, it, I caught the bug there in terms of being able to tell these stories and talk to people and and weave together what was going on and, and share a story and experience being edited heavily and the sending back several times and, and I survived that. So when I left college, I came back to Shelter Forest and it felt like a, a good place to combine these my interests i did i was there for several years i started as the administrative assistant and i left having having been spent a stint as uh, the interim ED. Then i left to do i thought i wanted to go back to school for planning because now i was interested in these topics i discovered that I was already immersed enough in these topics not to want to be in school for them, and I wanted to just go back to working with them. So I spent some time as a, just a regular old journalist, general interest, the news editor of the all-weekly paper here in Albany, New York, where I settled. And, you know, I brought a lot of my interest there. So when I was the news editor there, we covered a lot of planning topics and a lot of housing and related justice topics uh, at Metroland which is the name of the weekly paper. And then I freelanced for a while, and then I came back to Shelterforce. And at which point, you know, having spent that time in the journalism world, I brought an interest in having more um, professional journalists, right? So Shelterforce until that point had largely been practitioner written. So though I got the benefit of doing some real reporting and and being edited while I was there, really it was it had primarily been written by people in the field to that time. And that's still a core. It's a lot of what we do. We have more of that than most publications, but I started to introduce more in-house writing and more um, working with existing journalists. And I've been growing that over the past 13 years.
0: Well, speaking of professional journalists, um, I'm excited to bring in one that you, I believe, came on board And since you've been part of Shelter Force, who, unlike most of the guests here on Housing After the Dark, I don't think your kind of formative housing experience was in New York City, correct, Shelby? Uh, Just in case people think that every Housing After Dark guest learned in the crucible of New York City housing politics, it's only mostly true.
2: I have zero experience with New York housing politics uh, as a local.
0: Bless your heart. There's enough of us who've had lots of it that I don't think, you know, we don't necessarily need everybody to have done it. I think this is good. I don't know if if housing journalism's motto is, you can't make this shit up. But if you do want those quotes, New York City was at times a really good font of like, you can't make that shit up.
2: Well, I read New York City housing news, uh, and and you can't make that shit up.
0: Absolutely, uh, but so Shelby King, tell us your story because you come from the journalism side, from the PDX, I believe, right? Pacific Northwest's finest, or there some general Oregon way? How? Yeah. How did how did you go from journalism to housing?
2: Cor- correct, that I started in Oregon, and and I am a J school graduate. Uh, and started as a general news reporter uh, in, at small-town newspapers in Oregon back in 2009. Uh, and I pretty quickly moved into cops reporting, uh, kind of by fluke, but also because part of why I wanted to write as a professional journalist is because i like telling stories for people who don't have voices and and you know victims of uh crimes or victims of cops are definitely uh qualify for those. So i i started in cops journalism and was there for about 6 years. Um i decided that it was a little it was a little trauma heavy for what i was looking for and it was just time for me to kind of find a new beat. Uh, i applied for a few different places and uh, had a couple offers and the place that I chose was a housing reporting B2B journal in Portland uh, called the Daily Journal of Commerce. I kind of just chose it on a fluke. My other two options were either a local newspaper in a place I had already lived and didn't want to go back to, or I was trying for a radio job and I am way too verbose to be on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can podcast but I didn't know if I would how how long I would uh, go before I was beeped on NPR which was where I was applying for. So I took the job working at the Daily Journal of Commerce and they covered the development and construction industry in Portland and that was in 20 20- 14, uh, 2013, maybe, and things were just starting to really get rolling in Portland as far as uh, housing prices going up. And, you know, the recession was on its way out ish. Uh, and so construction and development were ramping up. People were making money again in the area. And I was reporting for these folks that were. Every day I was writing like build, build, build. You can charge however much you want. Uh, people are going to move here. You can make a lot in rents. And I was living an hour on the max out in this moldy little apartment in Hillsboro because everything was too expensive for me to afford on the thirty five grand I was making a year as a beat reporter at this tiny little newspaper, and so uh, after a few months of writing these stories that just were making me kind of sick to my stomach, uh, I found out that that our local uh, alt weekly, one of them called the Mercury in Portland, uh, was hiring a reporter, just a general news reporter. And so I pitched to them that we needed a housing reporter in the city because at that point, I don't think that the Oregonian was really covering housing. Uh, the Tribune was looking at housing every once in a while, but there were people getting evicted. There were places closed, like entire complexes being evicted so that that they could do a little revamp and then jack up rents. And nobody was really reporting on it. And so they, they bit. I got hired as... I was a general reporter, but my focus was always on housing. Uh, And I think I I didn't start the housing reporting there because it was already going on, but I was definitely one of the first folks in Portland to really start pumping out housing-related stories.
0: Well, great. I I wonder, you know, it's great that you mentioned this kind of your own housing struggles, because I think one of the challenges I think a lot of us as professionals has, if you've worked in housing as a professional, you've had some sort of traumatic experience in the housing industry because it's a fucked up place. But that doesn't compare to the sort of day-to-day traumas that most humans in America have with their own housing experiences. The fact that you center that in your own Change from just reporting on other things to reporting on something that was so personal, I think, is so critical. And I think it's something that is driving a lot of the activists and a lot of the professionals that I start to meet, especially the younger generation who are sort of, who see their own experience in housing uh, in this way. And I think are starting to to push, um, which is a bit of a difference. Again, I think we've had a lot of really good people in the housing industry that are very well housed. I'm now one of them, but who don't always have that personal experience of how traumatic the housing industry can be for so many folks
2: and i didn't i didn't even have it really all that bad you know i look white i have a college education i you know don't have a any like criminal record that would get like i it was striking to me how hard it was and how good i had it still
0: i mean this is obviously all a period where portland was never cheap but it was not as crazy as it is now
2: that, yeah, that was it was in 2014. It was before it really started getting going the way that it is now. But yeah, it was uh, It people they have passed a lot of laws in Portland because of the activism that started around that time uh, and and got no cause eviction changed and, and uh, rent reimbursement and things like that. And it was really all started, I think, because of the the reporting that was going on. But they you know, one of the first people that I reported on at the time was a house, uh, a business owner. She had a, owned a bookstore uh, and she had a developmentally disabled son who needed uh, really a like intensive care and she was priced out getting priced out all over the place and became an activist and got herself elected to city council. Like it, there was just a lot of movement in Portland at that time, uh, because things were going so crazy.
0: So I want to talk about the kind of current state of housing journalism. So one of the motivating factors and in, in having you both on was that it, it does feel nicely in many ways. Um, that there has been a pretty significant uptick in at least the quantity of housing journalism. Um, I also would say in some cases, in many cases, the quality or at least the diversity of the types of who's writing. Uh, I'm thinking my friends at the KQED housing desk, which was created over the last few years based on some really great reporting that had been done Earlier, um, huge shout out to the KQED folks. Uh, you know, Cal Matters here in California has ramped up some of its housing coverage. You get folks like Liam Dillon at the LA Times who are emerging as like very important voices. Uh, there's the folks at Vox who drive me crazy sometimes, but sometimes they write really good stuff. Sometimes maybe less so. Um, I think of Matt Desmond and the kind of role that he's played after Evicted and writing very beautifully and in, in very famous publications, you know, it's now all of a sudden, and your Sunday, New York Times reading about housing and uh, in new ways, or for instance, a very beautiful piece about Vienna social housing uh, that came out in the Times recently. Uh, so it feel, again, it feels like we're seeing more, but I'm very curious to sort of, you know, again, some diff- more diversity, but as as folks have been in this business for a while, Miriam, in particular, you've been Putting out quality housing journalism for a very long time over, over many years that were uh, you know very different. How how do both of you see where we're at um, in terms of housing journalism?
1: So you know, as you said, yeah, it's it's fascinating and wonderful to see how much attention housing is getting now. Because uh, when I started in this, it didn't it it barely got covered so homelessness would get covered as a sort of social ill um but the and you saw the other end of you know high-end real estate but the middle there uh really didn't get didn't get much coverage at all you know and it's unfortunate the reason right that there's a lot more coverage of it now is that it, it's a lot worse and it's affecting a lot more people and so it's dawned on on everybody that it's something that that needs this level of coverage and there's interesting ownership corporate investors to investigate and things like that but but it is nice to see as you said that there's a lot of a lot of uh, publications and and venues stations that are stepping up and doing some really good work and so what you know we stand our perspective is a little different because we we tend to be speaking to folks who are working in the field in some way and trying to add to that by bringing that sort of that perspective of what's it like on the ground what's it like for the people who are doing trying to build the affordable housing the residents trying to organize the tenants and um, so from that perspective we see that there's you know there's still a need there's still a need for folks to come up to speed on a lot of that stuff because housing is complicated. Housing policy in this country is terribly complicated. And I think a lot of folks are doing a lot of good work on investigating the pieces of it. Um, There are some conventional wisdom that I would like to see more journalists question and get into more deeply. There's some sort of Things that are taken for granted that may not be as clear as everybody thinks they are. Like, home ownership is a great way for building wealth for everybody, uh, and it, that's a simple statement is is often put out there. Um, or you know, we just need to build more, and it's supply and demand, and then prices will all go down. Again, the things that have largish kernels of truth, but are often presented as very. Simplistic. And I would love to see um, some more engagement with the with the nuance that's out there, as well as some more engagement with and taking seriously the solutions that are out there. And and I, you know, I'm very glad to have seen that the social housing piece that you mentioned the on Vienna in the New York Times, because I think one of the things that's been uh, such a longstanding lazy trope in housing journalism and just discourse in general is the whole, our public housing failed because public housing is bad and building public housing just clearly doesn't work because it it went bad places here, which is obviously, um, it is lazy and inaccurate, but very, very deeply in the consciousness of most Americans and. So, you know, one of the things I would love to see in housing journalism is people taking aim at dismantling some of some of these underlying things that keep us from approaching solutions.
0: I couldn't agree more about the how difficult it is to find. It's not nuance. It's more just sort of, yeah, it just everything is still painted in these very kind of black and white ways, um, and I find often yeah not just simplistic but also um, very old-fashioned often. it's a it's um it, it sometimes feels like I'm reading more about housing than I ever have, but like I don't necessarily think that it's as innovative as it could be or it's really sort of reflecting the innovation and in different ways of thinking. And I'm wondering, and maybe Shelby, this is partly a question for you to kind of talk about it. I, one of the things that I'm wondering is whether, part of the uptick in housing journalism is that housing itself is boring to the general public. The technical details, all that nuance, all that sort of programmatic stuff, but the politics, those are spicy. And I think what we get a lot of articles about, some of which are really quite good, Shelby, like for instance, your article about uh, equity folks and tenants rights folks and yimbies and kind of Ken folks all get along. Which has a brilliant quote by me, which is one of the reasons why it's my favorite. One of my favorite pieces to come out, obviously. Full disclosure, um, you know, we just promote our friends here on Housing After Dark. So if you're focusing on the politics, well, then you're, you know, you can always find somebody who's going to stand up and say something that is like really black and white and very simplistic, but is spicy and kind of represents one side, and then you get somebody else to say the other side, and you theoretically have an article. Not that this is what you've done in any way. Shelby. But is that I mean, Joe, so you focus a lot on the politics like, you, you know, is is that one of the challenges in your writing is how do you balance the spicy politics from the kind of technical details that drive people crazy?
2: I think that not being boring is always a challenge uh, when writing about anything with as many numbers as housing has in it. Um, so it's definitely the the politics side of it is definitely makes for better reading um and I think that a challenge of writing about the politics side that I even run up against is is looking for the nuance in those two sides that people are going to give you because there is because there are two stark sides that that uh, there are two stark sides that people tend to gravitate towards. So I think that what I see in my reporting and in other folks' reporting is that we tend to repeat the same issues over and over in that, you know, whether it's just build more and they will move in or why can't people just move if they don't like where they live? Like, I think that finding a different angle can be hard when you're new to such a complicated um Such a complicated industry. There are things every day that I well, I'll I'll think I have a grasp on something. And then even with Miriam, I can take it to Miriam and she can send me off in a different um in a different direction that I didn't even know existed. So I think that when you're a new reporter in this sphere, there is a lot of nuance that it takes like years and years to grasp. And if you leave out that part of the story then it's um it's just kind of repeating the same thing again. So I could probably be here for 5 more years and still run into that I feel like because there it, there it's so changing, so evolving and and there's so much nuance. So I hope that I hope to see some of the same reporters that are coming into the housing reporting now still here 5 years from now. We will write much better stories. You know, I will write much better stories in five years even than I do now. So I think experience is lacking in the housing reporting field because it's only ten years that we've even been paying attention to it in reporting at all. Uh, So I think it it lacks
1: depth of knowledge. Just really quickly, I want to say two things. One is we have, I have, I feel like some advantage on this because Force was practitioner written, and because we as a publication tended to participate in the field kind of as a colleague and not separate the way that journalists often are. I, a lot of the people that I turn to as sources now, I first met in a way that was more like colleagues. And I've spent a lot of time developing those relationships in a way that I don't know exactly how to replicate in a regular journalism situation, but it's extremely valuable to me in terms of having really understood the, the goals and the struggles and the issues of the field, at least when we we're talking about affordable housing developers and nonprofits and that sort of thing. And the other thing is while I agree with everything that that Shelby said there and, and your question, I also want to push back a little bit because. One of the things about housing, and this is the same with all journalism, and it's and it's a struggle, is that we know some of the solutions, and the problem is not that we don't know the solutions, is that we don't have the political will to implement them. And so, talking about the politics side of it is not always just because we want to seek more eyeballs or because it's easier. Um, it's often, it's actually often the thing that's being ignored and you know i like to say i was called by i spoke to fast company when mark zuckerberg was moving into wanting to fund housing at the beginning and they asked me what they were just doing an article about what could they fund and i said they should put their money in the same lobbyists that support the defense industry and have them go hard at the federal level on supporting actually funding housing in an appropriate way. That's not what they did. But I, I hold to that comment.
0: Wow. And, and that's, a—I mean, it's a really great point. I mean, if you look at my work and my writing, I write about politics. I mean, I'm not a hardcore expert on any of the very specific details of so many aspects of housing. You won't find um, that level. I mostly do a lot of work trying to be political. You mentioned sources and really trying to develop sources. I mean, is that one of the challenges that you both face as housing journalists? And that, I mean, that when you're going out there looking for quotes and looking for sources, are you hearing a a lot of the sort of more fairly simplistic kind of approaches? Because I know that I hear it a lot in the field from practitioners. I just wrote a piece on kind of housing missing mirror, the sort of lack of self-reflection at time between of those of us in the housing industry about what we're saying and how we're saying it and, and and how we're portraying it. Yeah, I don't, I, I for me, I feel like you as journalists are kind of up against it. I love housers, but I meet more housers with very s- simplistic approaches to housing compared to the folks who really sort of try it, can see the nuances and can see some of like, ha- Have that self-reflection and see what they how we've been doing things, and can say, okay, maybe we need to shift gears a little bit, or it's not quite so black and white, or it's not quite so simple. Is it? I I don't think it's all on housing journalists, or or is it?
2: I think uh, a new thing, having only come into the field uh, seven or so years ago, uh, or having only been writing about housing for that long, it seems to me. that the interest in housing has increased so quickly that some of the folks who we are approaching for stories now realize that there's so much more on the table now than there was a few years ago, that that, that the things that they say may have some effect. Uh, and so I sometimes think that it can be, difficult to difficult to get folks not to say the kind of repeated policy answers because uh they're nervous about how much is at stake right now.
1: Yeah. I I agree. I I have I would say that I've known a lot of pretty reflective folks in the field but often those reflections involve thinks that for various reasons for their day-to-day work, it's difficult for them to go on the record about. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It's really hard. And I, I, I know it often sort of, the, I have a lot of privilege in my kind of bizarro career um, to be able to say what I think. I mean, some of that is hard fought and, and I've made a lot, you know, there's things I've given up to be able to do that. Um, but Yeah, a lot of people do not have that. Um, You know, people often think that greed greed is certainly and money is certainly a big driver in housing. But I think self-preservation is the biggest driver. It's the one thing we all have in common is we mostly need to be able to keep our jobs. Uh, And that's just life in the current version of America. Uh, So I want to go back to this kind of question of uh, we had talked a little bit about or hinted at uh, around kind of, this kind of pipeline for housing journalists. What I, I want to make sure that we kind of end on what are the support structures and changes that are necessary to to support housing journals, quality housing journalism. whether it's making housing journalism better, uh, whether it's making it easier and be- more appealing to be a housing journalist, whether it's finding ways to help housers become journalists or journalists to really learn housing, um, or it's about changing some of the financial model. I mean, it must be interesting to see all of these publications Moving into housing when, you know, uh, the kind of fin- financial precarity, especially of independent voices like Shelter Force, uh, is a constant struggle. Um, I don't think there's a lot of housing reporters out there that are getting wealthy doing this, uh, and many are just holding on, you know, uh, with their teeth. And uh, so maybe we can start with some of the kind of how do we make housing reporters, and then maybe we can move into the question of how do we make housing journalism uh, a more secure and sustainable place. And if I think about housing journalists, there's a. Uh, I, I met a housing journalist. I, I'll I'll I always remember this a few years back, who was one of the new housing journalists in, in California. And they knew they were knew a lot about journalism and had a strong track record in journalism, but they knew nothing about housing or very little about housing at the time. Again, I think everybody knows a lot more about housing than they think they do because they live in it. It's one of the nice things about being a houser. But I spent hours on the phone with them talking and going through. And it was as much being a, a doing some coaching and training and teaching as it was uh, being a source. And soon after, I talked to a lot of friends in the business and realized that everybody had done the same thing, that essentially, like we in the housing community had helped this person learn housing. And then they subsequently went on to write uh, many interesting and important pieces in, in, in California. Uh, but that struck me as a very kind of odd thing i'm just curious about how you see i mean shelby you managed to learn housing on the job as a journalist miriam you kind of came from a more of a houser or at least had some experience but how do we improve the system for helping you know people become housing journalists whether it's helping housers learn the journalism or help or finding ways that uh to help journalists who are really interested in housing really learn all of that technical stuff that you need to learn and build that rolodex that you really need to be successful
1: I don't have a, you know, a whole package of how it should happen, but I think that your story points in a good direction for the field, which is that I think the 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 housing field needs to step up if and see if they can have those relationships even when the reporter doesn't reach out like the one that you did. And I think about what I said earlier about how my participation in the field led to these relationships and this perspective. And I would like to suggest that comms people in the housing world think less transactionally and more like potential mentors so that if someone, if a journalist is interested in coming to your conference, don't demand that they write a story about your conference in order to get a press pass, I think you should do everything you can to get them there and help them find the, not just help them find folks they could interview, but help them find the things that are going to give them the background to write the better stories that you want them to write. And anybody who's in a position to do that in any way, um, if it would be helpful in developing the the background and we have you know whether it's a webinar or or an event it doesn't have to be a whole conference but there's a lot of a lot of stuff that we do that would be useful to journalists and you know speaking as as a journalist sometimes um, if you're invited into a space without a direct expectation it provides better learning
0: I mean, amen. As somebody who is an inveterate conference organizer, the stuff that we talk about at the conference and the things that that's going to lead to are what matters, not the conference itself. Um, And yeah, it makes a ton of sense. What about you, Shelby? I mean, are are there things that you wish you had available to you as a junior housing journalist that would have made it easier or better um, that you think that we could, you know, things that perhaps some of us in the education space or in the journalism space could help make happen.
2: Obviously having better access or, or better information about um, terms and the acronyms and the past history uh, would have helped. But, but I also think that just comes with experience. So I think that in order to get people into housing journalism and keep them in housing jur- journalism so that they'll take the time to get that depth that they need, uh, you know, I mean, pay your journalists better, uh, but not you, Miriam. I mean, in general. Uh, but on top of that, I think that if you've heard of the Marshall Project, they talk to people in prison a lot. I think that housing journalism could benefit big housing, mainstream housing journalism Uh, could benefit from talking less about the folks that they're trying to help and letting those folks tell the story more, participate more in what is being covered and how. Um, I also think, you know, going back to us being an independent uh, organization and that that means that we are not a voice for any particular uh, organization, maybe there should be someone who is a journalist for one of the GSAs? Maybe, maybe there needs to be a journalist. I guess that is uh, that that has access to the inner workings of some of these organizations, and that maybe could um, get get information that that the other journalists don't have access to. So, I guess I'm just um, promoting the idea that independent is great, but if we could get some some influential organizations into telling housing stories, we'd be at the federal level already.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always wonder how, how much people really want to know how the sausage gets made. Uh, Maybe you know. that's
2: too nerdy, but.
0: I, think, I mean, again, I do think that there is something that's important there, um, it's fun. It's interesting that you mentioned the sort of acronym and the jargon challenge. I mean, to me, this we uh, it's a huge challenge for professionals and for activists and for everybody alike. It makes um, housing a bit impenetrable to folks. I think some of that is on us as housers to to, to make this less so. Uh, but I think it's also yeah. I think one of the things I would love to be able to do is just create a support system where people just understand that's just sort of part of it and it's an important part of it. There's a lot of technical aspect of it. I mean, housing, ha- housing is a very complicated thing. It has to stand up. It has to be financed. These are all hard things. Uh, and just get giving people the confidence to, to survive when things are going over their head or past them, or they're not understanding. Uh, I've been doing this for a really long time and I hear new things all the time that I don't understand, but I'm just more comfortable with my ability to play catch up. Um, and I think that's a really hard thing uh, that folks. but again, it's something that I think housers and journalists both have in common in this space. But so you mentioned,, I, I think we we talked a little bit also about other types of resources and support. So as a kind of final area, you know what for for housing journalism to continue, let's just call it an ascendancy ascendancy. And for it to stay quality and support independent voices like Shelter Force, what are the kinds of things that you all need structurally, other than obviously like a boatload of money would be really nice. But are there ways you all think that housing journalism and housing journalists, therefore, could be better supported in our current moment?
2: I think as a journalist, a thing that has been encouraging that I think should continue is uh, in 2009 when I started in news newsrooms did not collaborate at all, at least not the small ones. And we were very, we guarded the information that we had uh, and we, you know, looked for scoops to scoop other people. And I think that that um, with the, the way news has evolved and the news deserts that are out there and the lack of local news, I think that collaboration between newsrooms and more channels like INN to to be able to collaborate uh, are, would really Help gain influence and reach, and could make a, a big um, dent in the news deserts that are out there.
1: What about for you, Miriam? Plus one to what Shelby just said. The you know the Institute for Nonprofit News is doing great work on that front. Um, this is going to apply for all journalists, but you know more transparency from all the folks who are doing this. Um uh, particularly, you know, the government agencies. The changes, changes that, you know, we've written about that need to be made about making it easier to know who owns property. And those sorts of things, just sort of things that advance the ability of anyone, but particularly journalists to know what's going on, are particularly crucial in housing because housing is particularly opaque, as you said, and very basic things like who owns what is extremely hard to find, coordinated rent, you know, good data on actually what the changes in rent are, things like that. It's, it's all pretty scattershot, which makes, which makes housing journalists
0: work a lot harder. Couldn't agree more. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've grown more and more interested in this kind of data infrastructure stuff that creates some of that transparency. Folks who are interested can read more about that uh, on my sub stack. Uh, I really just appreciate both of you taking the time to join us. I feels like we didn't get into so many other aspects of this that we could do another one on. For instance, one of the big questions for me is is also The issue of local journalism, I think we're seeing a lot of really great stuff coming out in national publications and broader world. And I think it's really helpful for people to understand bigger possibilities and bigger things. But so much of housing is so local. uh, And as local journalism has been so impacted, can you ever, you know, replicate those kinds of smaller stories that are really important for us to understand? And I just want to, as a final note, just really appreciate, Miriam, what you said about kind of how housers can approach journalists when it comes to gatherings and conferences. And I I even, if it's okay with you, kind of want to extend that a little bit and to really get housers to think of housing journalists as a really essential part of our community, no more or less essential than people who work in housing finance or housing construction or housing policy. Um, And this is partly a a double-edged sword, is that I want that full embrace, I think, partly because I think it's important that we, as houses can then hold housing journalists and everybody else uh, accountable for that. I mean, housing journalists, certain ones I can think of, for instance, have become quite influential. They are arguably the most influential public intellectuals in the United States on housing are now all journalists. Uh, and sometimes they are just quite wrong. Uh, and they've been studying it and met so many experts over the years that they have felt that confident enough to put themselves as experts, uh, and that's great. And I'm just going to hold them accountable and just essentially consider them to be kind of key actors. And actually, this is something that I love. I don't consider myself a journalist. I'm not a huge believer, actually, in the possibility of true independence. I think we all are trying to do things in this world, and I love. I think you know both of you have put out pieces that are consciously trying to make a positive impact in the housing world. And that's why I love ShelterForce. ShelterForce isn't afraid to let its authors write what they think and write what they believe. And I'm sure there are some basic standards and evidence and all these things are important, just like in academia and in various other places, but uh, I appreciate that. And so I hope you don't mind that I consider you all essential pillars of this housing community and that that's gonna come with some expectations.
2: We do
0: not mind you're okay with that
2: i don't mind at all
0: well that's wonderful for those listening shelterforce.org uh miriam anything important or interesting or exciting coming up specifically in shelterforce uh in the fall or in 2024 that you want people to pay attention for
1: well we have a a great lineup of our under the lens series coming up so our next one we're just wrapping up one on disability and housing justice. We're going to be next taking a deep dive into the low income housing tax credit. So speaking of things that is challenging to make simple and interesting, and yet is on a lot of people's minds, that will be interesting. And next year, we're gonna be looking at the community development field. We're gonna be doing some look into climate, obviously, and housing and education. So.
0: Well, I'm excited. Anything about Litech that really brings out a lot, there's a lot of feelings there uh, for a system that is very important and very large and definitely needs to be reformed. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Shelby King, uh, other than your brilliant work on the politics of YIMBY and equity and tenants and uh, what is the one Shelby King piece that our readers should read, besides your awesome and underappreciated piece on B Corps in housing, everybody nerd out with me. The B Corp piece is very important. Any other highlights? If they can read one piece, what is it?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I am so focused on understanding really in-depth Lytech right now that I will say that what what we are going to publish on Lytech, I am even looking forward to because I'm planning on learning a lot from all the other folks. I am. I think the ADU update that I just put out has been really important to folks, and there is more coming on ADUs in the coming months, more changes or, or finalized changes that will be being made. So I think... Uh, Keeping up, up to date on that is uh, important to do, and, and I'll be following up.
0: Well, excellent. You'll also be having, there'll be more ADUs here on Housing After Dark, and just like with Shelter Force, I hope that I can say that the best is yet to come. Thank you both so much for being here.
2: Thanks, Alex.